Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, encamped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink! Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. And you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord. By saying, is the Lord among us or not? Let's pray. Lord God above, we do ask that you would open your word to us. We do pray for your spirit to work. That we would see Jesus. That our hearts would grow in love and hope and faith in you. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Don't know if you followed the news this week. Yes, it's another science illustration. (laughs) Just go ahead and warn you already and tune out, I guess. This week, historic week, scientifically, we got to see uh, the most underwhelming picture in recent history, I think, with uh, they took the first picture of a black hole. Hopefully you've seen the picture, you've gotten a chance to interact with it in some form. It's intriguing, particularly listening to how excited the scientists get for what is essentially looks like a bit of a smudge. Uh, It looks like a a water ring that was left on your table, except kind of glowing orange instead of... uh, No, I mean, honestly, it is a, a really remarkable thing to think about the fact that a very clever group of men and women took a picture of something that cannot be seen apart from God. I mean, light can't even escape a black hole. That's what makes them such interesting bits of creation is that light gets sucked into it and it's not powerful enough for even the light to get out. So how do you take a picture of something that light can't see? That's a really clever question. 
really clever answer that they got. They actually, part of why the ring is so fuzzy is they actually captured the light that just barely missed it, almost got sucked into it, almost got sucked into it really, really close, and then got out and then went taking back that way. And that's why you have this really fuzzy picture. And you can actually see part of it's brighter as the light returns to us and part of it's um, actually uh, darker as you can see kind of the way that the black hole itself is spinning and the light is going away. A really amazing thing. I mean, you think about it, it's really probably nothing more difficult to take a picture of. Uh, It's darker. Nothing escapes from, except maybe the human heart, I guess. The only thing darker and more difficult to see inside than a black hole. But they did something very intriguing. In essence, what they did is they didn't take a picture of the black hole. They looked at the black hole through the evidences and the leftovers behind it. They didn't look for the black hole itself. There are these amazing things that God uses to hold creation together. It's what keeps the galaxies in place. You realize part of the reason you're alive is because God has placed a gigantic black hole in the center of the Milky Way. It's part of what he uses to keep you here in one place alive. It's amazing. But because you can't see it, you have to look for the light that maybe almost gets hit by it. You have to look for the radiation that maybe almost gets hit by it. You have to look for all of the other planets and lights and things and radiation that bends because of it. You look for the secondary symptoms. Exodus chapter 17, God God sees the human heart, but we can't. And so part of how he lays open the human heart force is not to take a clear picture of it. We can't see it. It's to show us the secondary evidences, to show us the things that bend and move and shape and flow around it. It's to show us the actions that proceed from it. We already read Psalm 95 in the order of worship, and Psalm 95 is terrible in its ending, isn't it? The Lord swore in his wrath, they will never enter my rest. The author of Hebrews is going to pick that up to talk about what it means to be hard-hearted and go to hell. Man, whew, whew. I mean, for God to swear in his wrath that an entire generation would go to hell, what did they do? What was the heart like to produce that kind of response from God? Well, we can't see the black hole, but we can look the actions, the evidences, the proofs around them. Preaching chapter 17, this first part is a little bit difficult because if you paid clever attention over the last couple of weeks, you'll notice this is the second time I've preached the same sermon in two weeks. Okay, not really. It's a slightly different sermon. I used a totally different introduction, but everything else is the same. The end of chapter 15, they ran into the same situation. God took them uh, out of Egypt... You remember he took them the way they would not have expected. So if this is your fancy geographical map, instead of heading this way and then heading that way, the Lord takes them south. Takes them into the wilderness, takes them into a place that no one in their right mind would ever want to go. Even today. Not a place you want to be, it's a place where people die. 
much less to bring an entire nation out there. And the Lord does it to put his power and his glory and his majesty on display. Pillar of fire, pillar of cloud. I mean, that's amazing. That right there would be kind of a showstopper for most of us. But uh, even more so, he takes them through the Red Sea, parts it. They go through on dry ground and he destroys their enemies and the bodies wash up on the shore. Chapter 15, uh, chapter 15, they have this great song, right? Uh, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider fell into the sea. It's a magnificent moment of praise punctuated by immediate problem. Well, we have water, but we have bad water. We have bitter water. It's most likely salt water. It's polluted water. And it would make sense if you've kind of gotten right outside uh, sea level itself and you're right next to the ocean. If you dig a well, what are you going to get? Well, uh, if you're close enough, maybe you don't get all the good water that you want. Chapter 17, though, is, is a new intensification of the problem. After they left 15 next to the sea with the salty water, the bitter water, the Lord takes them to Elam where there are 12 springs of good water, 70 palm trees. They flourish there for a season. The Lord then takes them out to Rephidim. 17 explains it. The congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages. So step at a time, day by day, journey by journey, they make it further from the sea into the mountains. These mountains are not the Appalachian Mountains. These are not the type of mountains where if you get any, lost anywhere in the Appalachian Mountains, as long as you don't freeze to death instantly from hypothermia at like 58 degrees, you probably can walk in any one direction and either find water or people given enough time. These mountains, go, actually, use your afternoon, seriously, all joking aside, use your afternoon, go on Google Maps and just type in Mount Sinai. Probably not Mount Sinai. They probably have an entirely wrong place. And it's one of the best guesses they have, but they don't know. But look at what the mountains look like. I'll give you a hint. If somebody got really angry and took the red clay in your backyard and carved it into mountains and then turned it into rocks, that's what these mountains look like. It's a bad place. There's nothing living. It's absolutely desolate. And the Lord takes them step by step out into the middle of this place. And there is a big time serious problem. They got food now. He's providing manna, but they have no water. And again, that's a big issue. Water's kind of important to live, much less for an entire nation. So you're not just talking a little bit of water. It's like, oh man, give me a little Dixie cup. I'll be all right. No, 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 we need like a a large amount of water. We need what happened yesterday to happen for a couple of days so that the ground saturates and then we have these lovely little pools and ponds like the ones out around here in the grass. They're out of water. And now it's a different kind of problem because it's not just that they have water, but it's bad water. You know, I mean, if you take bad water and figure out a way to kind of improve it, that's one thing. Now there's just nothing. There's 
absolutely nothing. And again, go on Google Maps. Look, have a look at what this place looks like. There's nothing, absolutely, at all. And so again, what do the people do? Well, according to Psalm 95, they test the Lord. We get to see that it's, again, the same problem of grumbling, really. It begins in verse 2. But this is a slightly different sermon than chapter 15 because it highlights some kind of new elements to their complaining. First, the same with 15. There's a real problem. They don't have enough water to drink. That's catastrophic. This entire nation could perish in just a matter of days. I mean, you think about it, an entire nation could die in less than a week. Not enough water. But what happens here now is they've intensified their response. Rather than simply coming to Moses and saying, hey, in some ways it was easier in Egypt. I would contend you don't remember correctly, but maybe you want to try to hold that view. Here, it's something very different. Verse 2, they come to Moses and they say, Moses, we're all starting to run out of water. Do you think maybe you could go to the Lord and see him to provide some water for us? That's what they say, right? No, that's not what they say at all. Give us water to drink. They're not negotiating anymore. They have come with a list of demand. They want water. It has to be provided. It's now into a new phase of relationship. It is, they're demanding. They've gone from, hey, it would be nice to have, to, hey, I have to have. And you have to give it. No longer kind, no longer nice, no longer polite. It is quarrelsome and intentional. There are two other elements that need to be highlighted when we go to talk about their quarrelsome uh, behavior and uh, recognizing this is actually, I think, very important for us when we go to think about what grumbling looks like. There's two kind of key aspects to how their grumbling, their quarrelsome spirit manifests it here is that it gets increasingly personal with the people of God instead of the person of God. Rather than them going to have a conversation with the Lord himself, they get increasingly aggressive, increasingly personal with the individual that they see in that place. I mean, even their first opening statement, give us water to drink. I love, you can see the tone. You can't hear it, you can see it. What's Moses' first response? It's not like, hey, well, let's work on that. Or, oh, did you not pack enough? Or, you know, it has been hot. We've traveled really far. What is his response? Why are you quarreling? Wow. Ease up. That's really harsh. You've got to have a better way to go about this. What are you doing? Why are you picking a fight with me? It then gets explained that the real issue is your relationship with the Lord. You're testing God to see if he will provide. But it's weird because while they test the Lord, it is done increasingly in a personal fashion. Not for God, but for his people. There's another way we would say that today is shooting the messenger. You think, well, I mean, these people were 
they were knuckleheads. They'd seen all kinds of amazing things and, and did, still did all kinds of evil. And according to Psalm 95, almost all of them are headed to hell. And certainly, thank the Lord, I'm not. I, I don't have those struggles. And I'd actually give you a little bit of warning. Think about when you do get a little bit grumbly. I'm sure you never do that. But the next time it happens in 20 years or so, think about that fact. And just to start, maybe start paying attention as to how quickly you yourself want to make it personal about an individual. How rather than processing the circumstances before us, we'd love to take it out on that one person. That's his fault. I'm done with him. It's not Billy's fault. I'm just pointing it out. <laughs> I mean, to see how quickly we, we snap and we will turn on somebody. Someone who loves the Lord. Someone who's made in his image and yet we'll shred them. Because we're not getting what we want. You see, that's the second kind of key element here is that is we're not getting what we want. And your English translations, I don't know why they do this. They do not translate the next verse uh, correctly. I don't know why. It, they all do it. And I'm sure there is a very good reason for it. I just don't know what it is. Because uh, in um, verse 3, the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us, our children, our livestock, and our thirst? None of those are in the plural. It's all in the first person singular. So that when they come to bring their complaint to Moses, it's, I'm not getting what I want. That's what it is. I mean, it's not said quite that way. The grammar's a little different, but you get the point. I don't have water. My children are going to die. My livestock are going to die. I'm going to die from thirst and I'm not happy with it. Hopefully you got full tantrum mode there. That's about as good as I'm going to give you. Again, seeing this danger that is connected to the grumbling is just, not only is it being made personal to somebody whose fault it's not, but it's being done from the perspective of I. It's all about me. It's passed through the me matrix, the me filter, and it has failed the test. And you think, wow, pastor, that's a really helpful way to start thinking about uh, how I'll grumble and uh, be on guard and make sure I'm not thinking those categories. Uh, I would say, yeah, but you're missing the big point here. These are the behaviors that Psalm 95 says they tested the Lord with, and he chose to send them to hell forever. I mean, I, I thought that was reserved for bad people. I mean, this is what I do when I haven't, you know, I'm a little hangry. Snickers has made an entire ad about this. It's my life. In fact, actually, I guess my entire middle school, high school, and college career are those Snickers ads. And part of it is because I think what's actually the, the darkness of the human heart is that you're actually getting a chance to see the transaction that's taking place. Instead of God's promises, I will substitute my desires. And instead of faith, I will choose to punish someone else. 
You see, those are really the things that they're lacking. First is, instead of trusting God's promises, he's already told them that he's not going to let them perish. And he's kind of put it on display in some of the most spectacular fashions in human history. But instead of that, they're choosing their own desires. They're choosing their own values. They're choosing their own wants. Now, to be fair, is it a bad want to want water? No, that's not a bad want. I mean, wanting water when you're dehydrated, that's a good thing. But what they're doing is they're placing their wants above God's. That's the problem. It's it's a problem of hierarchy. They've, uh, in this transaction, they've swapped their wants, their needs, their desires above the Lord's and have made it personal to punish the people that he has put in place. I mean, again, we never do this. When the Lord designs for us to learn patience and gives us that wonderful driver directly in front of us, we never yell at them and never call them silly names and never say it's all their fault when the Lord is intentionally giving us patience. You never do that, do you? You never have that day where you maybe have that one child in the home or one coworker in the office or companion that you're spending the day with that you really want to strangle. They're driving you absolutely bonkers. And the Lord is giving you the great gift of sanctification, but instead you don't want sanctification. You want relief from the tyranny of the craziness of that individual. And they drive you crazy. And again, what have you done? You've done the same thing. Instead of trusting God's promises, placed our own values in his stead. Just like chapter 15, they haven't gotten it, but the Lord gives this merciful response to them. Unbelievably merciful. They're throwing full-on three-year-old temper tantrum. And the Lord says, well, I will show mercy. Wow. Decides to give them water. Didn't have to. He could have, honestly, they deserved all just perish. He should have let them all die. He chose not to. Again, the amazing thing is, Moses is serious, by the way, when he's talking to God. He's like, um, God, I don't really know what to do. They're about to kill me if I don't do this. Like, if we don't have water, they're going to kill me. And I, you're in charge. I just don't know what to do. So the Lord provides. Highlights his character. It, it showcases his mercy as he is gracious to a people that do not deserve his grace. That's technically the definition of grace. To show kindness where it's not deserved. He's gracious to these people. They deserve his wrath. They have been distrustful. They have placed themselves, uh, their own wants, desires, and needs in front of what God has uh, designed for them. And instead of just incinerating them, which he could or should have done, instead of letting them die of dehydration, which he could or should have done, he instead shows mercy. And he sends Moses ahead with the Staff of miracles in one hand, the staff the Lord has used to do so many amazing things. And as he walks up to Horeb at Mount Sinai here, he gets to the side of Sinai. 
And the Lord probably in that pillar of fire or cloud or whatever resides on a rock. And the Lord says, hit the rock. So Moses takes the staff and water. And again, I would encourage you to kind of spend a little time on Google Maps. If it's where we think it is, the nearest water is approximately 1,000 miles away. Not really that far, but hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away. This isn't like there's some great underground cache of water that if we just crack the rocks, the water will flow out and we'll be good. You see, that's actually a neat part here is the Lord is intensifying his provision over 15. 15, they threw a log in the water and it turned from bitter to sweet. 17, they actually split the rock and water ex nihilo comes. Wasn't there. God makes it. But rather in 15, where the log gets just pitched into the water to make it good, 17, you have God residing above it. He's giving them an object lesson to try to help them understand, look, it's not about water. It's about God. It's not about just having water to fill your belly. That's important, but that's not what it's about. All of human existence does not come down to eating and drinking and clothing. It's the point Matthew 6, Robert put in the liturgy. Human existence is not about pleasure and not dying and being wealthy and having human sexuality that you get to exercise your own choices and your own rights and be what you want to be. Human existence is about knowing the Lord. It's about knowing the triune God. Human existence, all of it, is about being in relationship with God. And so here the Lord gives them this object lesson to say, here's water and I'm right above it. Where do you need to be paying attention? Please at least connect. Jesus explains it in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God. But and then all of the other things will be added. Those are secondary. Eating and drinking, not dying. That's secondary. Not perishing of some hideous disease. That's secondary. Not dying of starvation, having clothes to wear. That's secondary. Relationship with God is primary. Verse 6, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and people will drink. And Moses did so. Again, thinking, this is not a little bit of water. This isn't like, hey, you got you know, your Dixie cup, and I got my Dixie cup, and we're good to go for the afternoon. This is thousands and thousands and thousands of gallons of water. Enough for a nation to exist and for enough for a nation to exist for a fairly lengthy period of time. It's done in front of the elders, again, hoping that they will catch us, uh, catch on to the, uh, to the idea that God is among them. That they would see that the Lord is their provider. Of course, they don't get it. But the Lord's giving them this great object lesson. And it's an object lesson... 
that's not entirely in focus yet. Again, if you want to go back and think about the picture of the black hole, it's a bit of an underwhelming picture because it's so fuzzy. It, like I said, it looks like a, uh, you know, a cup stain on a, on a table. It's not quite in focus yet. In chapter 17, this water from the rock, and in fact, actually, chapter 16 with the bread from heaven, and in fact, chapter 15 with the, the bitter water made fresh, they're all God's provision, but they're not quite in focus yet. Because they're all images that would be picked up in John 6 or 10, picked up by Paul, 1 Corinthians 10, to say, look, you've been having an object lesson in front of you for a thousand years to say that God is your provider, but the ultimate provision isn't food. The ultimate provision isn't water. The ultimate provision isn't clothing. The ultimate provision is Christ. If you were to read 1 Corinthians 10 later today, and I would encourage you to do so, Paul's going to go ahead and straight up explain that Christ is the rock. He is the provision of God. He is the one that God has provided to care for his people so that they will never die again. He's the one that is the solution for that black hole of the human heart, that constantly burning desire, the thing of needs and wants and self and me. Christ is the solution. And again, what an incredible object lesson we're given that the Lord takes them out of Egypt, takes them across the Red Sea, and then gives them Christological after Christological example so that we today would understand. New Testament's going to say it clearly. All these things were done as examples for us so that we would not follow the path of the Israelites. The path of the Israelites is to see God provide right there before them in their midst and not care. To still be filled with self. Now that right there, unfortunately and fortunately, I guess in the best of ways, is something that does and will continue to apply to us today. Because certainly our examples, uh, our, our uh, examples of need are not the same. It's been almost two decades since I was in a situation where I didn't have water and thought I was going to die. Dehydration. It's been a good two decades. Don't really feel the need to go back to that. But most of the struggles that we're going to face today are going to be of different kinds. But again, that same pattern is laid out. That the Lord is the provider of His people. He provides for us and that ultimate provision is in Christ Jesus. Will I follow this path the Israelites have set of of serving self of using my own values, using my own metrics of what's important? Or might we use them as a negative example? 
to say the one thing they didn't do. This is amazing, actually, if you think about all the things just so far they've seen in Exodus. The one thing they never did is they never marveled. Can you imagine that? I mean, you got led out of Egypt by a giant pillar of fire, and you weren't really impressed by that. That right there is an impressive thing to not be impressed by that. You have food falling from the sky. You know, a huge fountain of water shooting out of the rock. Eh, It's normal. They're not impressed. What did you see in Egypt? Might it be instead that we would use them as a negative example where uh, we would be constantly impressed by what God is doing? Constantly marvel at the science. I try to help you with that in sermons. Constantly marvel at the ways that he answers prayer. Constantly marvel at even the small little mercies that he's given. When I first started at this church, we were in a massive drought. I don't know if you all remember that. If you were here long, we were afraid everything around was going to die. All the plants were going to die and rain in forever and ever. We're not even, I mean, as far away from drought as we possibly can think. Parts of our country that have been in drought for 30 years aren't in drought right now. For the first time in decades and decades. Let's marvel at God's mercies. Let's ponder them. Let's delight in them. Let's be excited about them. But most of all, may it be that we marvel at Jesus. That the second person of the Trinity, he is God. And he could have stayed in heaven and said, man, those poor fools are idiots and they're getting wrath and they deserve every bit of it. But instead, stepped inside time and space to be persecuted by the great, 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 great grandchildren of these knuckleheads right here. The ones who were not impressed by pillars of fire and cloud would not be impressed by a carpenter. Who would do miracles in their midst? And when he did, they would say, oh, give us a sign. He just did it. To the point where when he would go to the cross, they wouldn't even care. And they didn't care. They continued to not care. Until they perished and they realized, oh, man, they were very wrong. And they suddenly cared very much. That King Jesus is the Lord of life. He is the rock from which all good and true water ultimately comes, but where life itself resides. He is the breath of heaven. He is life itself. May it be that we would marvel just a bit more at who God is and what he's done. Let's pray. Lord, we bless your name. We confess as much as we would love to make fun of these Israelites and think, oh, they were fools. It's damning ridicule really is what that is for we have done similarly as you have done amazing things in our midst and we've been bored by them we have your son the portrait of your glory in full focus and how many times have we just been like well yeah I mean that's Jesus obviously 
Lord, forgive us for that. How often we've, well, obviously, that's been our response. Oh, Lord, forgive us for our lack of wonder, our lack of, of awe, our laugh, lack of having our minds blown by the fact that the second person, the Trinity, would ride on a donkey into a town that didn't care about him, that would receive even false praise from them, knowing they would murder him shortly. And in doing so, he would take all of the sins of people who hated him onto him. And he would pay for those sins even while they continued to hate him. And then afterwards, he would change their hearts. Oh, Lord, how marvelous. What splendor there is in Jesus. Open our eyes that we might see that splendor more clearly. Bring it into focus, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.